Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. My name is Podcast Mike, just doing the intro for this week's episode with Anna Piper-Scott. This is technically version two of this episode because, as Will explains at the top of the show, uh, due to a faulty SD card, an unfortunate incident of a faulty SD card, we lost the original audio of this episode with Anna Piper-Scott. And... uh, By coincidence, I bumped into Anna at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and she very kindly offered to come back on the show and just re-record a new episode. So thank you very much to Anna for that. Anna is awesome. She is a stand-up comedian and writer, originally from Perth, now based in Melbourne. Her show, Queer in Present Danger, was nominated for the Best Newcomer Award at the 2021 Festival, which is amazing. And Anna talks all about her journey into stand-up comedy and performing in this chat with Will. She speaks about her experience with transitioning, amongst many other things. And also, we would like to plug that in this episode, Anna does talk about, towards the end a fundraiser that she has set up to help her pay for her top surgery. If you don't know what that is, she does speak about it in the episode. If you would like to contribute and donate any money, I will leave a link to donate in the show notes of this podcast. Will is also doing his Willegal show in Wagga Wagga at the Wagga Wagga Civic Theatre on the 12th and 13th of June. Definitely get tickets to that. Check out some of the other podcasts on the TOFOP network, including TOFOP, FOFOP, and Two Guys One Cup, an AFL podcast, most of which are with Will and Charlie Clawson. FOFOP has a guest each week. And of course, patreon.com slash Willosophy, if you want to support Willosophy financially to keep the lights on here at TOFOP, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month. Last week, we had Peter Hellier on for a catch-up episode on a Friday. If we do reach a consistent $5,000 a month, we will aim to have two episodes of Willosophy a week, one new guest and one catch-up guest. So, uh, please get on board there. But now, without further ado, please enjoy this fantastic episode of Willosophy with Anna Piper-Scott. <laughs> And welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson. From the title of the podcast, this is an independent podcast. Uh, there is no big company behind it. There is no radio station. A lot of podcasts these days have big radio stations. They have big networks. And that also means that they come with a level of professionalism. They might have a studio, a, you know, a producer in the studio who's recording the interview for them. And it would mean that when they do the interviews, they probably don't lose the audio and fuck it up completely. Well, this is the charm that comes with being indie, is it also comes with a whole range of fuck-ups. And despite the fact that I've been podcasting for 11 years, I don't think that I have got better at it in any way. So that is all just a little preamble for today's episode, because this is the first time that I've spoken to today's guest for the podcast that you guys are going to hear. Fingers crossed, don't want to jinx it. Uh, But it is the second time we've actually had a conversation because the original show that we did together, an incredible chat, uh, her end of it was perfect. Her audio 
Absolutely fantastic. Couldn't have nailed it more. Mine, as people have heard me complain about a little bit on my various podcasts, I'd had a handy little uh, Zoom recorder for the last seven or eight years, and it had a little SD card in it that's recorded thousands of hours of audio on it, but it got to the end of its run, and it meant that I fucked up a couple of uh, Willosophy records, and one of them was with Declan Fay. That one has been re-recorded, and you will hear a new episode with Declan Fay very soon, but the other one with, was with today's guest... This is the preamble over now. That's the explanation done. I asked this question. Who are you? My name is Anna Piper Scott. Uh, I usually describe myself as a stand-up comedian, a trans woman, and the voice of a generation. <laughs> so, Anna, now this is our second go at this. And you nailed it the first time, so no pressure to come back and do even better this time. But that was the rehearsal. That was the dry run. This is really, we're just going to go, you know, jump in the deep end. So Yeah, well, and I was real anxious after the last one because uh, podcast Mike, who, who produced this is the show with you it was just like yeah I'll be out in like two weeks and then like three weeks went by four weeks went by and I'm like did I completely screw up my episode of philosophy like you're just at the end like, she just didn't reveal enough trauma you know it's just what's the point you know she didn't say anything pithy enough for the James Fosdyke social media slides we're just gonna have to can this episode well I mean I know this is a movie cliche but it is genuinely true in this case it's not you, it's me. <laughs> I, 100% with philosophy. I don't think we've ever recorded an episode that I didn't think the guest was fantastic on, but you were particularly fantastic. It was a huge chat that we had together, went all over the place. And it's a lost episode of Doctor Who now. Just the fans will always be wondering what they missed out on. Well, technically at some stage, uh, because the problem is what I thought originally, this was my big plan. I was like, because both with Declan's episode in your episode because it was the exact same problem that fucked up in both of them. You think, you know, fool me once, you know, but I got it wrong twice. And what I thought I was going to be able to do it was go through and just put in the questions, you know, like, but there was no backup recording either. You'd think after 11 years we would have gone, let's roll a backup recording just in case something like this happens. But no, did not do that. Just thought, let's not wear a condom. Let's just, <laughs> no, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I reckon just splice my conversation in with Declan's and just it's a conversation between us, just some surrealist dartist masterpiece. You know what? That is not the worst idea in the world. That might be a good Patreon bonus where I just literally have you two dueling answers and people could just... Yeah. Or, or I could release. It could be a sort of if you've wanted to host your own philosophy at home, maybe I could release like your recording of your answers and Declan's recording of his answers and people can just, you know, play along at home. Just do their best Will Anderson impression. Right. Yeah, that's what I would like. But anyway, enough of my fucking mistakes and on to you. Let's dive in the deep end of Voice of a Generation. So you've just come off being a bit of a Voice of a Generation for a, a few months, which originally was what you came on to plug, which was your uh, festival show, Queer and Present Danger, that you were touring all over Australia to the festivals. But I heard, despite the fact that you did not get that incredible uh, philosophy um, bump that you would have got in ticket sales, that, that it was a nothing but a resounding success. Tell me a little bit about what uh, doing that show was like over the last couple of months. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll invoice you for the lost ticket sales in the first week <laughs> before what a mouth kicked in. Um, no, it, it went great. I took it to Adelaide Fringe and I got nominated for uh, Best Comedy there. And then I 
Um, and I had a bunch of sold out shows and some really great reviews. And then I brought it to Comedy Festival and I got another, I got a great review in The Age. I got a uh, Best Newcomer nomination here. Um, had some really, you know, people I look up to in the industry come see the show, which was really nice. But I did a post about this um, halfway through the Comedy Festival season. It's just kind of like, all that stuff is really great, but I also view a lot of that stuff as kind of like means to an end because it's approval from cisgender people and I'm trying to like write a show for transgender people um, because most transgender people can't go to comedy. You know, I know a lot of people come to my show and they tell me, like, I don't normally go to stand-up comedy because either the comedians forget we exist or we're the butt of the joke. And it's just kind of like, so all the reviews and the awards and everything like that is just kind of like, it's great, but you're cis people and I kind of only care a little bit about your opinion. I, I You just give me a bigger profile and more audience members to kind of, you know, add some more laughs to the room for the trans people who I actually care about. Uh, I, I love this. And this is something, again, I, I won't go over too much what we spoke about last time. We'll treat this as a new conversation, but... There were things within that conversation that have, you know, stayed with me and that I became particularly conscious of even during the run that I was doing. One night in Adelaide, I was doing my audience improv show and like, you know, unintentionally, I don't even know if I did misgender somebody unintentionally, but I was talking to somebody and I made an assumption about them, you know, as you would do when you're, you know, talking to somebody in the crowd. And I feel like it probably wasn't the correct assumption and then we had a little conversation around that and you know it, it was all fine it was good but it reminded me of how easily we just go to what are traditional stereotypes or what are traditional you know i mean roles it's, it's so hard not to i i misgendered an audience member during my run here in comedy festival and it's much worse when i do it you know i'm like <laughs> here's this model being like look trans people i am your icon look up to me and yes cis people this is the behavior you should model and i was doing this bit about why you should date trans men if you're a straight woman like he's like today trans men blah 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 and i've heard this deep voice from one side of the room was like yeah and i'm like I'm assuming that's a trans man who agrees. Like, actually, I'm a trans woman. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, I've gotten this as wrong as you could possibly get this in front of a full house in my bit where I've already shamed other people for doing just like, oh, I'm just like, I just was straight like telling the audience, I'm like, go cancel me on Twitter. I feel like I've earned it. Like, do it. It's not a request. It's an order. Well, I think that those natural assumptions and one of the things that I think you've been, you know, very vocal about uh, in, in a good way is and one of those things that I just had never really thought about on the level that I should have th- thought about it and I think this is partly a problem in society in general you start off doing something unthinkingly because it's what everybody else does it's the language that everybody else uses and you get so used to it that it becomes part of the furniture and you never stop and like look at the furniture and go, hang on, is this appropriate furniture still? Like, yeah. you know, I've just been saying it. And the big one for me is ladies and gentlemen. Like I, I've started noticing how often just when I'm like, you know, like trying to make a point or whatever, I'm like, like seriously, ladies and gentlemen or whatever. And I would have to yeah. like remember to just catch myself and realize, oh, you've just been saying ladies and gentlemen for so long that you don't actually, the words don't have any meaning to you. You just yeah. say it. But how about fucking stop saying it? <laughs> yeah, and it, it's a real hard habit to break. And it's, and it, I think it's more frustrating for me when I go see shows that are from uh, 
LGB performers, you know, lesbian, gay, bi, not trans performers, and like, and they'll do these shows that are all about being queer, and they try and broaden it, make it about the whole experience, but they still still say like, you know, I hear people say stuff like our brothers and sisters in the trans community, and I'm like, really, <laughs> our brothers and sisters in the trans community? You didn't think about that, you know? They'd be like, oh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this drag show. I'm like, you've got people who are literally between genders on stage as their act and you're still going ladies and gentlemen like you're still not thinking about outside that gender binary at a show that's all about being outside the gender binary maybe like because again i i have some understanding of this now but i'm not sure that i even have a full understanding of it at this point like can we just explore it a little bit more so that you know people listening can understand why you know saying trans brothers and sisters for example is not the thing to say. Well, I mean, uh, the, the types of trans people we get is you get trans men and women. Uh, I'm me being a trans woman, um, and that's people who don't match their assigned gender at birth, um, and believe that they are the opposing gender. Um, if you believe men and women to be op- opposites, which is controversial <laughs> side tangent that we're not going to go into. Um, but, you know, like, I, you know, was... I, I, I say in my show, I was mistaken for a boy when I was young, turns out I'm actually a girl. And that's, you know, trans men being the opposite. And then there's non-binary people who are outside of that. And some people who don't know better will describe non-binary people as being, like, a third gender when it's a really... a miscellaneous c- category for a thousand different genders that all have their own unique specific labels if you're going to get into it or maybe don't even have a label yet because non-binary folk are very new to talking with each other about this. So the language is new, even though non-binary people have been around for years and years and years. Uh, So every time you say brothers and sisters, you might be including me and trans men, but you're not including all these other people in this kind of weird third category. Um... And I, I say weird in a good way. <laughs> I don't want to know very personal. I'm not that weird. You, you are, but it's nice. It's good. It's positive. It's featured, not a bug. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's just kind of like when you say trans brothers and sisters, it's just kind of like this third category. And that category is growing. Like as people explore gender more and more, there's more and more people who, you know, I even hear people who call themselves like a non-binary trans woman, you know, uh, of like, you know, I'm mostly a woman, but I have these other aspects to my gender that sit outside the binary and I float between them, whatever. Like, it's really complicated uh, and beautiful and wonderful. It's like trying to describe different colours, you know. It's just, you're like, there's red and blue, but then there's also green, and then there's, like, kind of part where between red and blue and purple, you know, it's, it's fun. But why would you want to exclude those people? Like, that's a growing, you know, audience. Like, you know, even just think about it as a business person, which is like, this is a growing sector in the market that you should try and appeal to. What is? What do you think our, uh, as human beings, our desire to have things be, you know, black and white, to, for them to be so, you know, binary? Because, like, I mean, sexuality was always one of those things that I think, you know, when I was growing up, it was very much one of those things that was described to me as being like, you know, you know, you, you were gay or you were straight. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, even in that, it was one or the other. Whereas. Obviously, you grow up and you realise that life is so much more complicated than that. And, you know, most people are some various shades of grey on that, you know, um, even if they might identify as one of those binaries, you know, there are shades of grey in there. So what do you think in general, like whether it be sex, whether it be gender, what is this desire from our society to see things in binaries? And why do non-binary things seem to disturb us so much? I... 
honestly don't know because I mean, I feel like the entire time I've been growing up, I've been really interested in just kind of like in, in everything, like the weird in between spots, you know, of just kind of, you know, like even just like being a nerdy kid growing up. And I'm like, I wanted to read the superhero comics that were also sci-fi horror comics, you know, like that kind of, um, or even just like, I remember reading like mashups of like, it's Superman meets the Terminator or something like that. We're like, this is just weird in between these two polar opposites. And, um, I'm watching stuff like Gremlins when I grew up, which was a horror comedy Christmas movie. Like that was always the stuff that fascinated me. I always liked the stuff that was, um, weird and in between. Like, uh, I think for people who know me very well, I think it's surprising that I came out as a binary trans woman because it's probably the only thing I'm really clear and committed on. <laughs> like everything else, I'm in the uh, gray areas. I don't know. I don't know why people want binary things. I don't know why people want things to be simplistic. Like maybe the world's too complicated and confusing, and they just try and make things simple wherever they can. Uh, just a quick, quick uh, side plug for people. I recently did a podcast with the director of Gremlins, which is called "The Movies That Made Me." People can go and have a listen to that if you want to hear me talk about Australian films, but. I like this idea of what you're saying about, I guess, being interested in the things in between. That things are neither, you know, uh, one thing or the other. They can be a combination of all those things. They can be different parts of all those things. So what do you think this current trend towards gender reveal parties says about us? Because it, it just strikes me that in a time where we're being – told and coming to a greater understanding that you know gender you know is something that is much more complicated than we've been told up until this point you know is like why has that also seemed to rise at the exact same time as people start having these you know big gender reveal parties and stuff and again i don't expect you to necessarily have the answers to all those questions i just would like to hear your opinion i, on, I, well, I was actually that. listening to a podcast about this that kind of like broke it down and kind of went into how um Every time there's, like, a big shift in kind of how people view gender roles uh, in regards to gender or sexuality or, you know, women's rights or anything like that, they're also becoming, like, these big things around, um, you know, gendering babies. And it's this weird, like, coincidental thing, like, um, around the time of the 1950s is when pink and blue started becoming girls and boys colours. Like, before that, it was just kind of, like, you put your kid in clothes and they didn't really start getting gender clothes until they became a toddler. And, like, and it would just be kind of, like, boys and girls would wear would wear dresses and it would be, like, a baby dress. And, and that's what it was. It's just, like, it's not a boy or a girl. It's a blob. We don't care about it. We just need it to stop crying. Like, um, and then started having, you know, uh, we had, like, World War Two and had women in, entering the workforce and then stubbornly not wanting to leave the workforce when the men came back from war and just kind of all around that time. And suddenly, like, girls wear pink and boys wear blue and this is important now for some reason. I think, you know, people compensate. I think is what happens, you know. You get a big shift in one area. You get all these people being like, hey, we're trans and we've been here for a while, but we figured out the internet and we know how to talk to each other now. Uh that all happens and then suddenly people are like, oh, we need to like really firm down our ge baby's gender as soon as possible, you know? And I don't think it's conscious. I think it's just subconscious. I don't think anyone who's holding a gender real party is transphobic. I think they most of the time don't realise that trans people exist. Okay, so uh, I ask on this podcast if you have a life philosophy of any kind or a work philosophy or anything like that. So 
I've there's been a couple of times over the years where I fucked up an episode and had to do it again, and I'm always interested in whether the person goes with the same life philosophy as they went in the original podcast, or in the time in between they've completely changed their entire life philosophy. So if I ask you this question again, Anna, uh, what is uh, what is your particular philosophy? Um. I, 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 it's related to what I told you before, but I felt like after I did the podcast with you last time, I was like, oh, hang on, what is my life philosophy? And I thought about it a bit more. Um, I used to date a, a girl called Tiffany, who, um, she's a big fan of yours. She might be listening to this podcast. Hi, Tiffany, if you're listening. Um, Hi, Tiffany. But she's a social worker and, um, there was this like social worker, like motto that they all had, which is hurt people, hurt people. And mm-hmm. ever since she told me that, like, I, I've really had that kind of, like, just, like, repeating in my brain so often. Um, and trying to, like, remember that kind of, you know, like, that's most of the time when I'm getting hurt by people. It's either a reflection of pain they've received that they're passing on because they don't know how or it's because they don't know better, you know. It's either someone, you know, kicking me because they've been kicked or they kicked me accidentally because they didn't see me there. And that's, like... Once you realise that's 90% of the pain that I'm getting, that, like, it's not people being malicious, not people being hateful, it's people being sad and hurt themselves, it makes every conversation change, you know? It's such a powerful phrase. It's funny to me, uh, when I was at university, my, my, my friend and I, Vanessa Stoikov, her name is. Hello, Vanessa, if you happen to be listening in. Uh Awesome. Just like two people got on, just got on like a house on fire in our little journalism course we were doing in Canberra. And, you know, we would just sort of laugh at the course and write each other notes about how we were going to like, you know, skip out of class to go and watch like terrible movies at the Tugranong Hyperdome, which was this like big mall that had like a Sizzler. And like we basically would just watch every movie that would come out, go to Sizzler for like two hour lunches, like real you know, standard uni student grotty behaviour. Yeah. And we once went and saw this movie called Damage, I think it's called, uh, Willem Dafoe's in it. And it was not a great movie, but it had the used the quote, hurt people, hurt people. That was genuinely sort of what the movie was about. And at the time, we thought that was hilarious. You know, like, we're young, we don't quite understand the world enough now to... And so we used to joke to each other, hurt people, hurt people. And the worst thing is that I think in the next 20 or 30 years of my life, this thing that I come back to the most out of any movie that I've ever watched, any lesson that I've ever got, it's fucking damage, hurt people, hurt people, because I just see that pattern played out so often in our society that somebody's trauma becomes other people's trauma. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like I may not have held on to it as much as a philosophy if I had heard it from Willem Dafoe (laughs) rather than this girl I was in love with. I mean, I think the reason Vanessa wanted to go and see this movie was that Willem Dafoe like showed his dick in this movie, and like Willem Dafoe has like a like a very big dick. <laughs> like he has this sort of dick that like one day he was looking down in the shower and he went, "We've got to get this on the big screen. <laughs> I've got to show this to people." Oh, just imagine trying to sell a movie that way now. I'm just a bit like. <laughs> Gets to the celebrity's dick. It's just like, ah, that like carries the first night sales. And then I can just look that up and I don't need to watch Willem Dafoe preach about society. I can just get like, yeah, I got Willem Dafoe's dick. That's the only thing I needed from that movie. And I got it without having to watch two hours. Um, I, I, people will be curious. And we spoke about it last time. So I don't yeah, necessarily feel bad asking this. But I think, you know, when someone is trans, you said earlier that you know, you were like, you know, misgendered as a boy when you were young and yeah. you're actually, you know, a girl. Can you tell us a little bit 
about you know, how you did you always know that did you come to know that did you come to understand that always have a sense of it but then you know obviously come to understand the language and framework around what that might mean what what was that like for you um it was it's one of those things where yeah people people ask me and the, the answer I, I usually give is that you know like the way, like when do you know I'm like three and thirty depending on how you measure like I knew I was different for as long as I could mem- remember but. Um, there was so much like anti-trans stuff in the culture that kind of like the stuff I was seeing that I recognized myself in was also the stuff telling me this is bad, this is horrible, don't be this. You know, this person is, you know, stuff like um, Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs or the villain in Ace Ventura. Like, whatever I was watching, be like, oh, this, you know, boy who wants to be a girl, that's like me. Oh, but it's not, no, you don't want to be that. So I'm not like that. Um, and you repress it and you takes you ages to figure out and you don't have the language for it. Um, and I didn't even know like the trans people were like a real thing that you could actually be. I thought they were just like a fictional thing. I thought like thinking I was trans would be the same way as thinking I was like an elf or a dwarf or something like that. Just like, well, you might feel some like empathy for that, but also no one's actually that. No one's actually an elf. You can't be an elf. Um, yeah, I, I, I always think about this thing, uh, where, uh, this is this goes back to like the history of color. This is such a weird fucking tangent, but this is how my weird ADHD brain works. Is um, uh, colors appear in every language in a kind of predictable order, and it, you know, and up until that time, people just use the colors that they have to describe colors that are out there. So Plato, in one of his stories, describes the sea as being a, the color of wine, you know, of red purple color because. He didn't have a blue. Blue wasn't in the language yet. So he called it red. And I just feel like that's how I feel about, like, my gender identity. It's just like, well, I've only got boy and uh, that's my only option. And I can be gay, I could be straight, or I could be bi. So I have to figure out which of these three things is who I am. Because I didn't realise that there was a, a gender colour that I could be looking at and checking. I've got, like, I've got these three colours to look at. Gay, straight, and bi. Which one are you? And I couldn't figure it out because I kept thinking about it as a sexuality problem rather than a gender problem. Yeah, okay. That So you mentioned Ace Ventura and I think that's such a – to me is it's such a big example of – like I think I, I like to see some positives, like which is I think that things have changed very quickly. I mean I'm sure for the people who are disenfranchised by society in various ways, it never feels like change is happening very quickly um, and I totally absolutely understand that. But from – an external point of view i remember seeing ace ventura that first movie and like finding it hilarious and it wasn't until years later when somebody said to me have you watched the end of ace ventura and i was like oh no i haven't seen the movie since i was like you know a teenager or whatever when it came out you know it was like hilarious i remember it being hilarious and i can't remember anything about it that wouldn't wouldn't hold up by today's standards for anyone who doesn't remember the movie it's revealed at the end of the villain um is this woman who has been sleeping with everyone um, everyone's had a crush on, um, and turns out she used to be a football player. She used to be a man and that she, you know, in, in the movie's logic is still a man and is, has been like faking everyone in, in disguise as a woman and just kind of ends with revealing that she has a dick with like the bulge in the back of her underwear. Cause she's tucked it behind herself. Um, which is like, you gross penis. And then the other thing is just kind of like everyone, once they find out she's a woman, just vomits everywhere and it's like this big running gag of just kind of like every single man Mm. in the scene vomits everywhere because they're so repulsed by this trans woman that they've all you know had flirtations with um 
So yeah, yeah, this is like the pretty horrific. Of, this is like the final climb, final climax of the movie. Yeah, it's literally like this is the big punchline. This is the large joke that we're going out on. Yeah, it's, it's gonna, yeah, she's gonna have a dick, and we're all gonna vomit. Job yeah. done. We all walk away. The fact that I that was just so, you know, it, it, it wasn't even done to be provocative. I don't think. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you can imagine somebody making that now and going. Yeah, no. it wasn't it wasn't like edgy and like yeah, it wasn't like, oh, you can't say anything these days. We're so not politically correct. We're just you know I mean like I, trans women and trans men and non-binary people, like we weren't a thing for anyone back then. It'd be like like we were like fictional. Like no one expected to actually meet a trans person. Nobody ever expected a trans like they they didn't write that movie going like this is gonna upset trans people. They wrote this movie going like trans people don't exist. You know, it's, it's like if you were make, uh, making a joke about astronauts or something like that, you're like, oh, I hope I don't offend the astronaut community. What, like, what are there, seven of them? You know, like, how much do we care about uh, offending the astronauts? You know, like, like we're not seen as, like, this big, real, like, large part of the community. We're seen, seen as, as, like, a vanishingly small, insignificant minority if we exist at all. Okay, so how has that changed? I, I, I Just off the back of last night, I was watching a movie called Promising Young Woman, which is... Um, got quite an incredible film in a, in a whole bunch of ways. Um, but it has a, a trans actress in it, I believe. Like, But what I liked about it the most was there was no comment on that. Like it wasn't even really kind of part of her character. And I was like just thinking of those two things side by side, Ace Ventura and that moment, and thinking, well, that's happened in the last 20 years. I'm sure for the people who like have been disenfranchised for 20 years that – 20 years seems like a really fucking long time, which it absolutely is. But in yeah. another way, there is a part of me that's like, are we moving quickly? Are we getting better? How do you feel about where we are at the moment? Um, I mean, I I would like it to be quicker, obviously. Um, like, I, I see the pace that kind of like this happened for gay people. And I'm like, I really don't want our journey to take as long as that did. You know, it's just kind of like, Gay gay people only just, just recently, within like the last five ten years, stopped getting cast as the gay best friend. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're kind of like we have all these other roles, we have these, all these other stories for gay people now, for gay men especially, um, less so for lesbians, less so for bi people, um, and like oh, you know, we can tell this story about gay men, we can tell that story about gay men, and, and you know, we and like, and then promising young woman Laverne Cox, trans actress, is playing effectively the gay best friend role in that movie, you know? And just kind of like, okay, so we got where gay people have been trying to get away from and it took them... An opportunity opened It took them like 15... They've got got out and there's a spare spot there. There's a gap in the market. Yeah. You know, we rushed in to fill that void. We were the understudies for that part, apparently. Um, I I had not thought about it that way, but I understand understand what you're saying. I will just... And again, this is not to, an argument. This is literally just a, I, from my point of view is all I was saying was what I liked was it didn't feel like they were leaning in. Like in the old gay best friend days, it was very much, look at you, you're gay. Here's the cliche of what it is to be. Whereas I thought in this movie, everything was treated at least a little bit more like, no, this is just shit. Like, But I get, well, I, I mean, can also that's... understand what you're saying, which is that, yes, it's the, the best friend. Yeah, I mean... I 
there's part like the optimistic part of me is like yes things are moving it's great that we've gotten there I like that we're here this is much nicer than having her be the villain I think you know Laverne Cox is probably the only person in that movie who comes out looking good you know everyone else I feel like you can criticize a bit more in that yeah. movie um uh, so I'm like I'm great with that but it's just also like there's part of me that's kind of like oh maybe you didn't play into the stereotypes because there aren't really any stereotypes about trans people for you to play into that aren't horribly transphobic you know like the, there's not a lot of myths and stereotypes about like oh here's some fun playful stuff about trans people you know here's the cute stuff about how they like Madonna and you know are good at fashion like there is for, for gay men it's just kind of like we're horrible villains and that's like you know it's, it's like we're, we're the butt of the joke we're not, it, there's not even jokes about what we do or how we are you know trans people are the objects in most transphobic jokes you know, we're not subjects with agency like gay men can be in homophobic jokes. Yeah. I, if that I, makes sense. It, it makes complete sense. Uh, and I love it because I had not really considered it like that, which is... Um, okay, so then you, as someone who then works in comedy, you know, and in this space, you're trying to create, you know, those stories. You're trying to create those tropes. I mean, not necessarily tropes that will be repeated and, you know, used in that way, but you're playing in a space where, you know, if you, like you said, if you were a gay male comedian, for example, there is a certain amount of language around what that might mean that you can either play with or play against because people have expectations already built up in the audience. As like a trans woman, what are you like playing with, you know, in the, what does the audience expect when they come in and what are you playing with? Well, I mean, I get to play with those um, trans... Like, this is the thing. I mean, you cast Laverne Cox, you can't play into horribly transphobic material because you are in control of her story and in control of her representation. So you can't get away with it. Whereas I can play into this horribly transphobic stuff and tackle them and, and talk about them because... I can say whatever I want about it because it's about me and it's about my community. So I do material about how um, this this stereotype, this like myth that trans women are bathroom predators and stuff like that. And I do jokes about how everyone thinks that trans rights activists are going to come into schools and force your kid to change genders and stuff like that. Like I, I can... There's like a whole bunch of hate towards my community that I can just tackle head on. But I have like talked about this and just kind of like once I get past those ideas that like what's next in my career is just kind of like okay like I I can't make stereotypes jokes about my community because no one knows the stereotypes you know like and there are stereotypes in the community but they're not known outside like they're like the there's a stereotype that trans women love pickles you know like that's <laughs> really that's not a joke it's a really so a lot of the hormones that trans women take um increase your appreciation and your desire for salty foods and a great way to get like a salty Mm -hmm. flavor without increasing a lot of salt content is pickles so a lot of trans women end up really liking pickles and it's a little in joke in the community but i can't make that joke on stage in front of a cis audience without doing this big preamble to explain what the fucking stereotype is you know um so that's i think the next challenge for me is to try and figure out how to explain those weird nuances again in a way in a way that um cis audience can understand and can appreciate the joke, but it doesn't feel patronizing to a trans audience. Because that's the other thing. I do have both audiences at the same time and I need to make the show funny 
at the same time for both of them when they've got very different understandings of the material and very different understandings of the subject matter. I, okay, know? so quick sidebar, which is like, I, I, this, I love the pickle thing because it's also a, a huge thing in the AFL. You know, professional athletes are big on pickles and pickle juice as well because it's one of the most effective ways to rehydrate. Again, you know, to do with your body's mechanism. So, like, it, they're, they're your two groups in society that if you're seeing somebody buy a big jar of pickles at the supermarket, you're like, trans woman, AFL footballer, we'll work it out. Could be both. That's okay as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's currently a, a count of one person at yeah. the moment, but hopefully we can broaden that. Well, that's right, yeah. Previous guests on this <laughs> podcast. Like, oh, it's though, it's Hannah. Way. It's Hannah Mass. Yeah, exactly. You can check out Hannah's episode of Velocity, of course, if you want to have a listen yeah, to if, that. If anyone w- wants to know what to get Hannah yeah. as a present, jar of pickles. She'll love it for at least one reason, probably, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's like, this is offensive to me as a trans woman, but it is very helpful as an AFL player. <laughs> So you do talk about this idea of serving two masters. And, of course, you made the point very validly before, which is, of course, I am also serving, you know, two masters or three masters or five masters. or But because so often, you know, things are seen from ladies and gentlemen point of view that the other masters that you're serving just have to sit there in silence or feel alienated from being there in the first place, right? Like, you know, they go, yes, I have mental health issues and I'm just going to, if I want to go and see a comedy show, I'm probably going to have to run into a comedian joking about, like, you know, mental health stuff, right? Like, or saying words that are going to make me feel disenfranchised. If I am, like, you know, you have a different sexuality, you have a different gender, all these sort of things. These are all areas that these people already are in the audience, and I guess this was the big uh, conversation around when rape jokes were a big topic of conversation in the comedy community, which was the idea of, you know, if you are doing this, there is somebody in your audience who has experienced rape, you know? Sadly, yeah. sadly, probably there's someone in your audience who has both raped somebody and somebody who has been raped, like if we're being really brutally yeah. honest about it, you know, just based on the statistics. And, you know, the, the chances are that is the fucking case. So, um, but you are conscious of the fact that you have these audiences is more the point I'm trying to make is you're saying, I want to be speaking yeah. to the trans community and be a voice, you know, like of that community. But also I want my material and my audience to be cis people who need to hear this as well. So how do you balance those things? Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a different solution for every joke. Um, you know, so there's not one size fits all answer. You know, sometimes it's make this joke that explains things to a cis audience and then have a joke that follows right up. Then it gives a joke to the trans people. Um, I'll have stuff where I will make a joke for the trans people and then I'll explain it to the cis people. Um, and, you know, and, and I get to make jokes about the fact of like how the audience reacts, you know. I can, like, make a joke knowing that some people are going to drop off and be like, oh, only women laughed at that one. That's interesting. Mm. You know, <laughs> a lot of, you know, a lot of high-pitched cheers for that. Not a lot of the bassy ones that were there in the last one, you know. And and I get to, like, analyze my audience and kind of have fun with that and just be like, you know, this is how people are acting. This is, you know. Um, and because and, I do a poll at the start of my solo show, I poll the audience and I go, who here identifies as queer in some way? Who here identifies as not queer, who are here identifies as trans, and we get a real survey of the audience and just kind of like, I can then point out and be like, oh, only the trans people laughed at that, and we know where they are because we heard their cheers, which kind of 
um, even just, I think, sometimes for a cis audience, letting them know the joke was funny and they just didn't get it rather than the joke was bad, you know? Which is kind of like, yeah. oh, the joke or, was funny because the people who got the joke laughed very hard and you heard them laugh. You just didn't understand it because of your, you know, because you came here with not enough knowledge. And that's fine. I'll give you the facts now, well, you know? Right. But also what I love about that is that it... it I mean, it's important, I think, for cis audiences to sometimes understand that not everything's for them. <laughs> that like the things can be for other people, and that they might have to do some work to work out what it is. That you don't have everything handed to you on a platter in that situation. So, Sorry, yeah, if all the jokes no. like that, they don't want to see the show. But if one joke is like that out of every twenty, then that kind of like makes them want to kind of come back and understand it a little bit better you know it's just there's almost like little easter eggs and kind of you know and then there's just people who do get those jokes and they get to feel very good about themselves for having done the work you know they're like oh yes i know what a vaginoplasty is i'm very good trans ally well done me you know i i i wouldn't undersell that i'm uh, such a big believer that like you know the spoonful of sugar method which is that if that's the best way to hear it if that's the best way to understand it if you can go out and have a night night of laughs and come away with an advanced understanding of other people at the same time, which I think at, at its heart, a lot of comedy is about anyway, is a very important thing. So when you're doing this little survey of your audience at the start, is there any group of people who are completely underrepresented in your audiences at this stage? Honestly, trans people. Yeah, right. It's, I, I trans people, uh, despite this being a show by a trans woman all about being trans, they're still the minority in almost every audience. Um, there's been nights I've done the show where it's been entirely cis people. Um, thankfully, not many, but there were two or three in Perth where it's just like all cis people, all straight people. That was very interesting. Um, show still goes well, which is nice. Um, but it was just the, the last were coming harder at different places in ways that were a bit confusing. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, I'll often pull the audience and be like, who here is trans? And you'll get two or three people who cheer. Um, and I've done only two shows where trans people were in the majority and yeah, I just want, I want more trans people to come in, to come out, but trans people are scared. Trans people are scared to go to a comedy club. Like that's a really intimidating place for a trans person to go, you know, especially with, with stuff like audience interaction and stuff like that. You know, like if I sit in the front row and I don't look enough like a woman or enough like a man or I'm too confusing or whatever, is the comedian on stage be like, oh, yeah, what's your deal, sir, ma'am? What do I call it? You know, and just have be like the subject of attention like that. It's terrifying. I Yeah, absolutely. I can understand that. And it's it kind of, I find it shitty that it's taken me so long to, I, 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 when I say, like sometimes I, I, the last thing I want to be is like um, performatively self-flagellating. I, like I, what I really want to do is like investigate, you know, things that you've done, things that you've done well, things that you've done badly. I think as like a, an artist and a comedian, it is your responsibility to be constantly doing that. Part of the reason that I started doing my crowd work shows as like one-off shows rather than incorporating my crowd work into my usual shows had to do with, and it wasn't to do with somebody like or their sex or their gender. It had to do with an interaction I had like with a dude in the front row where I just sort of got in his space in a way that was comedic to the rest of the audience. But afterwards he was, yeah, just messaged me and said, look, you know, I'm not, this isn't the biggest deal in the entire world, but I just really want to let you know that, you know, it made me feel uncomfortable what was happening and, like, I know everyone was laughing along and I didn't want to make a big deal and I'm not – you know, he was really generous in his 
feedback. Like it was offered in a very constructive and generous way, but I could tell that he'd been genuinely distressed by what had happened. And so part of the reason I started doing these, you know, crowd work shows as specific shows was so that I could advertise them and go, look, if you're in the front for your rows, I am going to talk to you. If you don't want me to talk to you, if you want to come along to this show and, you know. No, yeah, but top 10. Go, yeah. Sit, sit up the back. I won't talk to you. Everything's fine. But you're not just going to go to a regular show and then suddenly find out that you're in the show. Like, I'm going to make you very clear and aware of this. And it had to do with that very thing. To then, of course, extrapolate that to somebody who says, well, there's already something about me that I don't want to you know, be brought out in public, that I don't want to talk about, whatever that might be, is obviously an inc- incredibly intimidating thing. So, Yeah, well, I mean, I, I didn't even realise how... Because I'm a fairly confident person. I'm fairly able to kind of go out and, and be in the world and attract attention, you know. I, even even if someone's hurling abuse at me, like the narcissistic comedian part of my brain is like, someone's paying attention to me. Uh, but I didn't realise how many trans people was like so scared to be out in public, especially to show, until I realised that even when I do my survey, I do my survey of the audience. This is after I've done like 10 minutes of material and they've gotten to know who I am. I'm like, who here is trans? And I get the cheer. And then people have told me afterwards, like, hi, I was in the audience, I'm trans, I didn't cheer because I didn't want to draw attention to myself. And you're like, oh, my show about being trans, delivered by a trans woman, where I'm in control of everything, and, and I've, you know, already banned from people and shut them down or whatever, and you're worried to reveal that you're trans there in that space? Like, yeah, I didn't realise how terrified a lot of my community are, and I'm just kind of like, you know, I'm, I, and... It can't just be me, you know? It can't just be me out there. It's going to take, like, a cultural shift for them to, you know, not have bad experiences at any comedian's show, not just mine, you know? that To have the kind of, like, level of comfort like most other minorities have, you know? Like, you'll hear some racist jokes occasionally at comedy shows, but it's not like every time someone mentions a black person or every time someone mentions a woman or every time someone mentions a gay friend that it's going to be bigoted and horrible. Like, statistically, on average, most of the jokes about you are going to be in your favour in those other communities, or at least trying to be, whereas statistically, most of the jokes about my community are going to be pretty hateful. <sighs> what a... Um, it's it just... <clears throat> I, I like this because we're talking about a whole bunch of different things than we talked about last time, and that's always, um, you know, interesting to me, but I also feel like maybe the audience doesn't get served as well by me not asking some of those same questions again so can we just backtrack a little about how you got into comedy yeah um and where you were in your life at that stage like you know was anna who first started you know doing comedy or was there a comedy before you know Anna was revealed to the world in all her glorious, um, you know. Well, uh, glorious <laughs> might be up for debate. There might be some people who disagree with you about that part. But, um, yeah, no, I, I've been doing comedy for 10 years uh, and I transitioned three years ago. So the bulk of my comedy career was, uh, it was all in Perth. Um, and, yeah, it was pretending to be a boy. Um, and... Uh, I'm very grateful that I learned how to do comedy in that environment. Um, A, in Perth, because Perth does not have a lot of tolerance for long meandering stories and whimsy and stuff like that. Perth is very much like as many jokes as possible in as short amount of time as possible. We paid you our hard-earned mining money. We want to laugh. Um, (laughs) We're not here for anything else. We're not here for your thoughts and feelings. We're here to fucking laugh. Um, 
which is a, a good environment to, to learn in. Um, but also, you know, I kind of, you know, got a little bit of advantage by kind of learning how just be a performer and learn that joke craft and technique and um, how to hold a microphone, how to use the stage, all those kind of like performance stuff and writing stuff before I had to try and figure out how to make all this funny. You know, like, I don't know that I would have been able to serve those multiple masters of different audiences and stuff like that if I had to learn performing like this. Um, but also it was really hard because it's very much a boys club. And when you're trying to be part of a boys club, when you're not a boy and you don't even know it, it kind of ends up really messing with your head in a lot of ways. So it really was like a double-edged sword. Um, and it probably kept me in the closet longer than it would have been if I'd found a different performing community. I feel like I might've been out a lot earlier if I'd somehow fallen into the cabaret scene or the acting community or something like that instead of stand-up comedy. You know, I feel like they would have been less toxic. Yeah, I I can understand that. And I'm interested in, are your expectations, because I I, I don't know what the answer to this question is. And, um, you know, so you get surrounded by this sort of toxic masculinity, let's just call it that, you know. Um, And you think, well, I could never, you know, be who I truly am in this environment. Like, you know, everything, the way the language is, the way that people interact with each other, it doesn't feel like this is an inclusive place for me. When you then are able to become who you are, do you, are you included or were your suspicions right that it is exclusionary to, like, I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, is the reinforcement, this idea that this is not a good environment for this, is it true? Like, is it a, when you did, you know, come out as being Anna, who you are, was that community exclusionary to you or did they adjust the way they interacted and the way they experienced life? It was mostly exclusionary. Um, And... I still feel like here in Melbourne sometimes, which is, you know, a much more progressive city, it can still be a bit exclusionary. Um, And part of that is kind of, you know, you get those kind of like comedy edgy, you know, like, oh, we're not going to say the work thing where, you know, you know, comedy is about free speech and free speech means saying something really stupid and offensive. Um, (laughs) The definition of free speech. (laughs) Yeah. Um... And, you know, those are going to be people who are like, and my best friend is now this lesbian trans woman who I've known as a boy for seven years. Like, that's not going to happen. But it's also exclusionary because just most of them, you know, if they're not the comedy, edgy, you know, free speech weirdos, they're just the dudes who only watch comedy specials and they only listen to comedy podcasts and they only kind of, like, exist in this stand-up comedy world and just kind of, like, they meet something strange from outside of that and they don't know how to deal with it, so they don't, you know? Um, And just a lot of the boys in stand-up comedy everywhere don't know how to interact with me. And the ones who do are usually a minority of a different stripe, you know, of just kind of like, oh, you're, you know, bisexual, you're gay, or you're, you know, uh, I get along very well with um, Dane Simpson, for instance, um, Indigenous comedian, for those who don't know, because 
Dane and I have like these weird parallels where we get to talk about, you know, just like the ways that being visibly trans and being visibly, you know, just the fact like Dane Simpson has been confused for every brown comedian out there. Um, and I've been confused for every trans comedian that's out there. Uh, and we just get mistaken for these people just like, oh, because they just see the minority and they don't see the facial features anymore. Or just we have both had people coming up to us after shows being like, I love how diverse you are. I just love your honesty. <laughs> I mean, love how is, political you are. This is certainly not to refute your point, but I will offer to the table the amount of times I get confused for Adam Hills. I feel like people just do often confuse comedians for each other, regardless of how stupid they are. As yeah, I just, I just never got confused for another comedian beforehand, and then I get confused <laughs> a lot. Um, uh, no, I understand that. Yeah. Of course, I was, I literally only joking, uh, uh, but I. I am disappointed to hear that that is still a thing even in Melbourne. I would have thought that like an arts community like Melbourne would have been much more supportive and much more open to people who have incredibly diverse stories to tell and that like Melbourne is famous for the difference between the Melbourne arts scene and the rest of the country is meant to be that it is one that has been built at least partly on diversity. It's, it's not that they're not supportive. It's not, you know, like, you know, they'll, they'll book me, they'll put me on their stages. It's just, it's more just kind of like, I get there and they just, they don't know how to talk to me, you know? Uh, and I think part of that's like, you know, some of the few stereotypes that there are around like queer people is, you know, like, uh, that trans people are uh, very easily offended, you know? So I come into the room and then just like, oh no, we're going to offend the trans woman. She's going to cancel us on Twitter or something like that. <laughs> Watch what you say. Like, I just feel like everyone just sort of, like starts walking on egg- eggshells when I'm around. I can feel like people tensing up and just kind of like second guessing what they're about to say. Um, like, I don't think it's hateful. I think it's just kind of like they're not familiar enough with, you know, queer folk to talk to them, especially trans folk. And, you know, it's not that they won't do it. It's just they seem to find it very difficult and the conversations don't last that long or get that deep. How do you feel about the idea of, um, you know, your role? in changing that. Uh, I mean, I had Jordan Raskopoulos on the show and Jordan was talking about the, we discussed that idea of that some people think it's not their job to, um, you know, explain to other people about their lives and their experiences. And I totally respect and understand that. I imagine it could be endlessly exhausting to constantly have to, you know, reset every fucking time you have a conversation with somebody or be the authority. I've, I've asked you a few questions today that, you know, I've asked you go, you know, what's your take on this? Um, I imagine if every conversation you have is somebody going, you are trans, therefore you are an expert on all trans issues, it must be exhausting. But what's your particular perspective? Because Jordan was also saying that from her perspective, the conversation of it often isn't for the person she's talking to. It's for the next trans person that person interacts with. That Jordan's passing on something that helps the next trans person who has an interaction with that person. Yeah, I... I, I do I do like talking about it. I do like educating people and there's also just kind of like specifically within the context of me performing it's just kind of like okay if you don't enjoy explaining it have fun with people not enjoying any of your jokes because they don't understand right. you know like <laughs> yeah of like, of like you're gonna have to explain stuff if you want people to enjoy the jokes if you want to have an audience you know if I want to be on TV if I want to be on the Melbourne Comedy Festival Gala I can't be above explaining transness to a cis audience. Um, but personally, I, I enjoy it. I, I think one of the big problems around the trans community is that people don't 
talk to us often enough and about these things often enough, you know. Uh, all the conversations I had about trans people in, in very stereotypical fashion, the same way it has been for Indigenous people, every time there's a conversation about land rights or um, women, every time there's a conversation about the wake up, it's people who aren't part of the community having the conversation, you know? People talk, talk about sexism and there's a bunch of men on the panel, you know? People talk about Indigenous people and there's a bunch of white people on the panel and then people talk about trans people and there's a bunch of cis people having the conversation. It's just like, talk to us and stop being scared by it. Stop thinking that we're difficult to come by or that we're inaccessible or that we're going to jump down your throats. You know, I want people to talk to me and be like, hey, I've always wondered this about trans people. Maybe like, hey, here's this funny, likable, informed, relaxed answer that made you feel good. Now ask another question. And then they leave knowing a bunch more and, you know, feeling excited and engaged by my community rather than feeling scared or repulsed or whatever you know like that's why i say about my comedy it's just kind of like if i make them laugh they can't hate me you know it's hard to hate someone who's made you laugh for an hour so not about us without us i think is you know something that really it's a very simple way for everybody to remember particularly in media that you cannot have these conversations without you know having a representative of the people that you're talking about let alone like perhaps a whole panel of the people that you're talking about yeah. rather than just but, even just but certainly at least a representative of the people that you are talking about but it is scary to try and be an authority on this stuff when you feel like you're figuring it out on on your own you know it's just kind of this thing of just i feel like you know people have found out that i have hay fever so like well tell me how allergies work i'm like I don't know i just sneeze in spring like i don't have all the answers i i'm not a scientist mm. I just know that this is what my body's going through or what my brain's going through. Yeah, I, I get that a lot with arthritis because I have arthritis in my hips and everyone knows I have arthritis. And then other people talk to me about their arthritis. And I was like, I don't really know anything about arthritis. I know my hips yeah. hurt. And I, yeah. I know what to do to not but make explain my how hurt. bones work. How does calcium get deposited <laughs> in the bones, Will? Like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't fucking know. I don't know. I just know that I can't sleep on I just, my right I have bones and they hurt. <laughs> I wake up and I have too many bones. That's all I know. Uh, so what was your material about before? Oh, it was terrible. Um, yeah, I uh, a lot of my solo, solo material I don't remember. I had something about uh, when I first started about that whole uh, Superman cartoon thing of look up in the sky, it's bird, it's plane, it's Superman. And I was doing this, like, really terrible joke. I'm like, who was the first guy who thought it was a bird? You know? It's just kind of like... It's like, who cares? <laughs> no one... Like, who's watched that cartoon in, in, in the 30 years preceding this joke? Why are you doing this? Um, I was talking to my friend Patrick Collins, a uh, fantastic comedian here in Melbourne. Because um, they were asking, like, what was, was your comedy like? I'm like, I feel like I spent seven years sharpening my knives and getting really good at like, I'm like, Oh, I've got these perfect daggers and I've, I've, you know, got them perfect and I've been polishing them with the finest polish and everything like that. But it wasn't until I transitioned that I finally had something to stab, you know, I'm like, I'm like, I've sharpened my knives for seven years and I finally have something to stab. But now that makes me frustrating that I'm watching a lot of comedians and they don't have a point of view. They don't have an angle. I'm just like, I'm like watching comedians where I'm like, you are fantastic. You're great at crafting jokes. You're, you've, you've, polished and you're you know like no one has better knives than you but like can you please stab something can you please care about something can you please give a shit like and it doesn't need to be like big important it's not like why aren't you taking down the liberal government it's just like what do you care about that no one else does and why aren't you talking about that and just stabbing the shit out of it you know 
So it's a weird metaphor. No, no, I I love it. I think that that you're absolutely spot on. I mean, it's one of the things I say to people I work with in television a lot, which is my major criticism of shows that don't work is what question were they answering? Every show should be answering a question of some kind. The question doesn't need to be a big question. It could be like, who's the best amateur singer in Australia? Or like, you know, how do you, you know, do this? Or blah, 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 this. Or like, you know, whatever it is. But there has to be a question that's being answered by the show. And so often when things fail, you're just like, well, I just don't know what question they were trying to answer. And I think that's what you're saying about stabbing is that you can have yeah. all the skills, but unless you know what it is, and it, like you said, doesn't need to be a big thing that you're stabbing. Yeah. It just just a point of view. Like it can be, be you. It can, uh, yeah, it can be you getting up there and talking about how ridiculous the French government was in the 1300s. You know, it doesn't. No one cares. But if you care, mm. you can make me care because <laughs> you're clearly very good at what you're doing. You've got the skills. <laughs> Like, fucking stab the French government in the 1300s. I don't know, but if that's where your heart is, I will follow you there. Like, there's nothing more entertaining than watching someone talk about something that they care very deeply about. Okay. If they know how to talk about it. So, tell they me... know how to make it. Understand I think it. I get an understanding of what you're stabbing at the moment. But what is the kind of, you know... Uh, What's the serial killer plan? What's the escalation? Like if now you're sort of, you know, stabbing the idea of let's get some, you know, trans people out. Let's break down some of the things that cis people think around trans people, you know, like uh, have fun with that kind of challenge, you know, pre-existing opinions. What's what's after that? What's the next step? Because I feel like when you say voice of a generation, I know you say that tongue in cheek, but I think that you don't say it tongue in cheek as well. I think that you mean it probably pretty sincerely as well. And I have absolutely no problem with that. I love, I think that comedy in particular, you know, is one of those things that you have to have two things really at the exact same time, which is to be very, very good at it. You've got to be your own worst critic. You've got to like really just be the the person who you know relentlessly uh, goes through everything and says this is the best I could be doing. But you've also got to have this be it misguided belief that you could be the greatest comedian in the entire world. And I feel like you are one of those people who does have that and is a little happier to talk about it than perhaps some people are. So can we talk about that? Yeah, um, I, I, I when I was first learning comedy in Perth, um, a comedian by the name of Wurzel, who I imagine with you having gigged as long as you have, that you've probably done some gigs with mm-hmm. Wurzel. Um, and I don't know why I'm giving him credit because I repeated this story to him one time and he did not remember it. So I'm going to take. I'm, I, I came up with this quite once. Um, <laughs> no, but he, he said to me, like, he's like, every comedian is some combination of high self regard and low self esteem. Just, I am a fantastic comedian. Pity I'm such a piece of shit. You know? I'm, like, one of the best performers out there. It sucks and I'm so bad at this, you know? Um, And I'm trying to, like, as much as possible get rid of that low self-esteem, which is part of the grand master plan of my comedy, if there is one, is I'm trying to... Just, I, I've seen comedians for years be self-deprecating. I've seen comedians for years be mean. I've seen comedians for years be all these negative things and just kind of like, okay, we know how to do that. Uh, and I want to find out how to be a comedian who's nice. I want to find out how to be a comedian who's kind, a comedian who's confident, a comedian who loves herself. You know, I'm like, like if Lizzo can do it with her music, why can't I do it with my comedy? Why can't I be up there and have people be like, yes, I love myself the way she loves herself, you know? 
Um, and like, I, I feel like that's where I'm seeing all the memes going. And that's where I see it. Like there's been so much like negativity and toxicity and hatred and fascism and Nazis and everything in the culture. They're just kind of like, what if I did a joke where I was nice to someone, you know? Like, every interaction I have with a heckler, I'm like, how do I make this funny and also make them feel good? You know? Like, rather than be like, you're a piece of shit, how dare you interrupt, blah, blah, blah. Just really like, you know, I made jokes about, you know, like, it's so lovely that you're trying to collaborate. I really appreciate this energy, you know? Um, and, like, that's where I feel like the ball's moving. That's where I feel like people uh, are going. Like, people... And, and and that's harder. I feel like it's a more impressive thing for a comedian to do. I feel like it's really f- easy to be funny and mean. But, like, one of my favourite bits of comedy I've ever seen was Andy Samberg at um, the one of the Comedy Central roasts. And just he was doing, like, the funniest compliments he could think of someone. And then just acting like he was nailing the roast. Like, yeah, burned you real good. While it was just, like, about how much money they make and how good they are and how talented and successful they are. And I'm like, that's hard. That's a lot harder than what anyone else is doing. But when you pull it off, it feels so much more satisfying. I have, so this is, it's funny you bring this up because in my, you know, uh, improv shows, this is something that I've been trying to do as well. Because of course, so often when you're interacting with an audience, part of it is, you know, making fun of them or making fun with them. But I've been trying to lean much more into the idea of it being making fun with them rather than, of them even if like sometimes i now just say it like i will say to the audience i'm like i'm not going to make fun of you i'll make fun of me i might use what you're doing but it's about me and then the audience will almost self-correct so if you if i start to in my riff lean into kind of making fun of them you can feel the whole audience go hang on you promised a minute ago that you are only going to make fun of you and so then that itself becomes the joke now i'm in an area where i can you're kind of you know, serving two masters in a way. You're still having some gentle fun with them, but the fun is back on the fact that you couldn't resist making that fun. You've taken it away from them being the the object of like the kind of, I guess, ridicule or like, you know, and the object of the ridicule is now me. It might be using some of the bits of our interaction, but it is definitely back on me, not on them. Or it's it's just like, make the joke that you think they will find the funniest. Yeah. You know, just be like, even just having this mentality when I'm talking to an audience member of just kind of like, if I'm talking to you, you're the person I want to make laugh the most. Uh-huh. You know, I don't want everyone to laugh while you look there uncomfortable and you look upset. I want to do jokes that maybe I lose half the other audience because they were confused, but you found it hilarious and you were glad that you spoke to me, you know? Uh-huh. And... Even have even it's just like not necessarily like I'm not gonna make a joke at your expense, but maybe make a joke at your expense that you will find funny yeah. or that you will laugh at. You know, like rather than me trying to like laser in on the stuff that you're insecure about, what if I laser in on the stuff that you're very secure about? You know, like I make a joke about like how you, uh, you know, like oh, you know, you're looking so confident and you think this is all about you because you're hot. Okay, I don't care. You know, like making a joke that's like bitchy in tone but complimentary uh-huh. in content. You know? <laughs> yeah, I do know. Yeah, I, that's cool. You know, just, like, like I, I had someone guess the punchline of a joke and just kind of, like, I was doing this whole thing about, like, okay, you think you're better than me? You're going to do the whole show for me? <laughs> you're like, what? <laughs> or just you guess one joke, you think you're the best comedian, you know? And it was just, like, it was rude in how it was, like, the, the behavior was, but she felt great about yeah. it. And I felt great about it. The audience felt great about it. 
Even though I was being quote unquote mean, I right. wasn't being mean. Like, because it was something she felt fine about, you know? Yeah. No, you were reinforcing this kind of idea that, yeah, you're a great comedian, that you're smart, you're the winner. I think it's part of, in in a way, what the apart, and it, it is a little different because Tom Gleason dresses his stuff up still as if he's kind of interacting with the audience and putting them down, but he's not. It very much is, we're all in on the joke. There is a hug here. It never feels mean spirited because of that. And so often the thing that he's, having a go at them about, particularly on hard quiz, is them just being an expert at something. You know, like... Yeah. They're being mocked for being really... Like, for being smart in an area, for, like, really knowing a lot about something, that sort of thing. Exactly. It's it's operating this whole logic of a sarcastic insult is a compliment. Right. If a (laughs) sarcastic compliment is an insult, then a sarcastic insult is a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, do you have a comedy philosophy then? Like, we've talked about life philosophies, but like, do you have a specific, you know, philosophy to your comedy or any rules around your comedy, things you will or won't do? Um, I, I don't think there's any hard and fast rules of like, I will do this or I won't do that. Um, I, I think just like my, my big thing around comedy is trying to make sure that I don't watch too much of it. Um, like we spoke about this a little bit on, on the other recording was, was just like the, I've got this idea of, I'm just trying to like watch as much other things and figure out what I can learn from that and figure out like, how, how do I do that in comedy? You know, like, like I was just talking about earlier of just like watching Lizzo and being like, oh, you are a person who wouldn't normally be loved by society and you're up there loving yourself and getting embraced for it. How do I do that in comedy? How do I do what you do in Juice and do that in, like, my stand-up bit, you know? And watching, like, burlesque girls do the same thing. Like, burlesque is this whole thing of, like, power fantasy for, for women mostly of watching, you know, someone take their clothes off and be dominant on stage and own it and have all these things that normally be shamed about, but, like, nudity or body flaws or whatever. And making that, you know, the point, making that a hero, making that, like, something you look up and idolise. And, you know, the number of times I see people coming up to burlesque girls and be like, I wish I could do what you do. I'm like, okay, well how do I do that? How do I give my kind of queer audience that feeling? How do I have a bunch of queer people watch my show and go, I wish I could do what you do. And I want to do what you do. You know, uh, it's just kind of trying to like be like a, a little kind of cultural magpie. Um, but the other thing, the, the other philosophy I picked up recently during comedy festival is I was watching a lot of shows at previous festivals and just be like, is this a good show? Is this a bad show? Why is it a good show? Why is it a bad show? And trying to like deconstruct and be like, okay, but I'm like, I feel like I'm past that. I know how to write a show. And now I'm, what I'm trying to do is just like whatever comedian I'm watching going, what are they doing that I can't do that I can steal from them? And not like stealing material, stealing bit, but just kind of like, um, I watched, uh, Charlie's angel, uh, who, uh, who very, very wonderfully, he, he beat me for Best Newcomer at the Melbourne Comedy Festival Awards. Congratulations to Charlie. Uh, lovely show. Very much enjoyed it. But he was doing stuff where he was doing similar kind of concepts to me. I've got bits where I challenge transphobic people who have interacted with me. He's got bits where he challenges homophobic people that interact with him. But he was doing all this stuff that I can't do and that I haven't done where it was just facial expressions and it was nonverbal and it was just holding these moments and just making people laugh without saying a word. And it was all these like big laughs who was getting between lines, between bits of the script. I'm like, I don't do that. I just talk and talk and talk and talk. And it's me going, okay, how do I start doing that? How do I start getting those laughs in between jokes? How do I kind of like steal that technique from him? And I've started doing it and I'm getting better reactions. Like seeing his show and having that philosophy of like, I'm just going to learn from everyone meant that like the shows I did after seeing his show and the shows I did before, the shows after were a lot better 
just from that mindset and not having been like, is a good show, is a bad show. It's just like, what is he doing that I can't do? I, I love that. And so uh, what you're talking about, I think in particular to Charlie is something that, you know, when I do my improv shows, so often I think those shows are, and it's, I hate to say this about something that, you know, I might've spent six months working on as my regular show. They can be on the night much funnier because you are getting so many laughs, not just from the material, but from your interaction with the material because it's in the moment. Yeah. You're not controlling your face. You're not trying to replicate something that's happened beforehand. You, When a joke falls flat, your eyes show it. Your face shows it. Your body moves in a different direction. You know, like, and the audience laugh at that. Having that stuff back in your material show, which I think is what you're speaking about, which is bringing it back to being in the moment, not just replicating the moment, but being in the moment so that you can perfectly raise your eyebrow in the right way or, you know, acknowledge what is happening or, you know, it feels like when you say, you know, that you can identify where the trans people are, where the cis people are, where the gay people are, whatever it might be in the audience, it feels like there's a bit of that in how you're interacting with your audience anyway. It's probably bringing more of that in and just being in that moment more yeah yeah but i think with charlie it was it was specific it was acting choices it was Mm. things that were like scripted for him but it was just kind of like um you know playing a character and putting more emphasis into like the voice of the character which i've been learning to do but also like the facial expressions of the character like uh, it's hard to like do it on an audio format but just kind of like he had someone like yelling at him in a cinema and then afterwards it was just like (laughs) and just like and it was just like the lips going in and out and the eyes flaring. And it was clearly like a bit that he was doing every night. Yeah. It was always that way, but it was so good how he was doing it. I'm like, I don't make those choices. I don't yeah. make those decisions. Um, I don't make them in the moment. I don't make them when I'm writing it. I don't, I just kind of like, it's all words, words, words. Uh, like I, I had this whole idea that if every comedian is either a writer performing their own material or a performer writing their own material. And I'm definitely a writer performing my own material. I'm trying to like learn more and more how to be a performer, how to do acting things rather than writing things, you know, and watching someone like that and be like, oh, and then I was watching Nath Valvo who was performing on a giant stage at Max Watts and then going, oh, look at how he's using the entire stage. He's not planted dead center. He's going all the way to the left, all the way to the right, all the way to the backstage, all the way to the front. Like he's, it's the entire stage is in play. And I'm like, I'm on a stage a quarter of that size and I don't use anywhere near as much space, you know? And it's just kind of like, okay, how do I use my entire stage like he does? Like, it's just every comedian, I'm just being like, what can I pick up from them? And just kind of like, just trying to be like the rogue, uh, like rogue from the X-Men of just stealing everyone's powers. I'll offer a counter argument. By the way, Nate Falvo, I think more punchlines than anybody else in the game. One of the funniest comedians going around, like not just in Australia, but in the world at the moment. But I used to be a big Roma. And eventually it just gets tiring. I, I highly I would I would highly recommend just standing in the middle of the stage. I don't even take the microphone out of the microphone stand now. It's you'll just feel a lot, lot less tired at the end of the show. No, but it's just kinda of like one of the things of like I, I was enjoying watching him use the entire stage and like and like and it was kinda of like one of those things of like I'm not gonna be Nate Falvo and use that much for stage. I'm not as <laughs> much of a flamboyant dancer like he is but i'm like i'm using more a lot of karate kicks in his show as well (laughs) yeah i just kind of like okay but you know i don't need to use an entire 20 meter by 10 meter stage but i can use a little more of this two by three meter stage that i'm playing on you know I, i can just do slightly more than just being planted in one location um are there things that you like watching in other people that you have no interest in actually incorporating into your own work um, 
sketch comedy. Mm. Um, I like watching sketch comedy and watching kind of people play other characters and switch between all these different voices and costumes and PowerPoints and stuff like that. I mean, I feel like that's the kind of thing you're talking about. I'm like, it just looks very exhausting. Like it's fun to watch. <laughs> yeah. Just like watching a Patrick Collins, who I mentioned earlier has a show with like a hundred different tech use that they're operating on stage with a mouse taped to their hand whilst they're doing mime and magic tricks and stuff like that. I'm like, I love watching it, but it would be so exhausting to do a show like that. And I have no interest in doing it. I'm like, like I'm, that's the one thing I mean, like just every show that I've done over the course of the different festivals I've been part of is just kind of like, okay, let's do this without a projector. Projectors break. I don't want a projector around. You know, let's do this without the props. Let's do this without this bit of set dressing. You know, do you really need an armchair on stage? No, you don't. Like just as much as possible, just like a person with a microphone. I want to be able to perform the show anywhere. I don't want to have to. St- I don't. I don't want to get halfway through the show and be like, fuck, I forgot to pack the egg. Yeah. I can't do the egg bit anymore. <laughs> Run out of eggs, you know. Like the jokes only depend on me; they don't depend on everything else. I'm never related to somebody harder than I'm relating to you right now. That is my absolute. Like I once had a joke that involved um, props. It was the I used to do this bit. It was like the, when I was first starting out, and song two by Blur. You know the woohoo song. And anyway, yeah. it's got funny lyrics. So the music would play as my intro music, and I would come out with these pieces of cardboard that had the lyrics like one by one and it would kind of reveal the lyrics. That was how I would start my set. It was a good way to, particularly as a young comedian, a good way to get the crowd really involved, like fired up at the start. It had yeah. a good, it had a really good strong punchline. So I had these like cards transition straight into my set. Really great opener. But people would steal the fucking cards. I'd have to collect the cards at the end of the night. You couldn't go for a drink at another bar afterwards because you had these fucking bits of cardboard. Wasn't in a position financially to be putting together new cards at the start of every set. And eventually, I was and just, just like, every time I've before got you get on stage, <laughs> every time you get on stage, like you yeah. got to like like rifle through the cards, make sure they're all in the correct order, so that your punchlines don't come at the wrong time. People are like, that's not the lyric. What is he doing? <laughs> Uh, um, you watch okay. sketch shows and like they, they've got they've got twenty bits like that. It was just kind of like, how are you going to tour this? How are you going to fit this in a suitcase? You know, just like you go for a gallon of milk every show. You're going to really drink <laughs> that much milk over an entire month? You know, what? It just not. Um, can I talk to you about the comedy? And I don't want you to uh, to get dragged into um, uh, a debate that perhaps you know, I can have and perhaps you can't have, I don't know. You're a bloody grown-ass woman. You can make your own decisions about whether you want to dip your toe in this or not. But um, I would say that uh, the great success of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival this year had to do with the internationals not being there. It wasn't without internationals. Like, there were obviously a range... Daniel Sloss won the People's Choice Award. That means he sold the most tickets to the festival. Daniel Sloss is clearly a Scottish person uh, who was in Australia as an independent comedian. Yeah, brought out by a promoter, does his shows. People want to go and see Daniel Sloss. Ross Noble was at the festival. Arch Barker's at the festival. These are people who have connections with Australia, but, you know, are international comedians. But they are not brought out by the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Normally, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival brings out a whole bunch of international performers they pay for them to come out they put them in the best venues they all get gala slots you know they probably get reviews in the paper because that's the traditional way that it's all been done they're promoted by the festival i think that 
you could make an argument over the years there was a role for that, particularly before the internet where Australian comedy wasn't as diverse. The idea of getting out, you know, huge female comedians or huge like, you know, comedians who had, you know, um, you know, I mean, like who had a, a wider range of life experiences so that if you can, you know, see it, you can be it. There would be comedians within the Australian scene who said, I've never seen, you know, uh, a, a person with a disability do comedy at this level. I've never seen yeah. like, you know, a trans person do comedy at this level. But I think that in this current day and age, the idea that Melbourne has this festival that then imports people to compete against the Australian comedy community is probably an outdated idea. And I think this year the festival was incredibly successful because the performers who wouldn't have normally got those time slots, wouldn't have normally got those reviews, wouldn't have normally necessarily got that first look audience, were getting them because the internationals were not there. Uh, that's just my point of view. You can either comment on that or we can move on to something else if you'd prefer not to comment on that. Um, I'm, I, 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 I am aware that... I, I do not have the career advantages that you have to yes. be too critical. And I'm aware of that Festival. also, which is why I frame it like that. Um, which, you know, uh, I, I very much want to be on the next Melbourne International Comedy Festival gala. Um, the question I'd put back to you is, well, then how do you feel about yourself doing stuff like fringe festivals or acts at your level, you know? Um because I had people saying that to me about the fact that I was doing Melbourne, Inter I was doing Adelaide Fringe Festival, um, and I, I got nominated for Best Comedy, and like one of the acts that I was up against was the Umbilical Brothers, another one was Ross Noble. I mean, Ross Noble is an international, international act, but he's been performing here for a while, so I don't know how much that does for or against him. Um, but it's kind of like, oh, I, I am competing in this festival against acts on that level. You know, acts that can tour nationally, acts that don't necessarily need the support of a festival um, to make money, you know, um, and, and yourself, you were performing at the Adelaide Fringe Festival. I think um, uh, Adelaide's probably different, is what I would say, is that because there is, like, Adelaide Fringe, f firstly, I would suggest, I think, that it, firstly, I think it's a legitimate question to ask, like, and, and that's, I think we should always be having these debates. The, the difference, I would say, between the two things we're talking about, just to make that clear, is that we are not being imported there by the Adelaide Fringe. The Adelaide Fringe that's, is not spending Adelaide comedy money to say, come over here, we'll put you up in a venue, we'll make sure. It is, we're there in the same way as Daniel Soss was at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. You're brought out yeah. by somebody who thinks that audiences will come to see you. I've been performing at Adelaide Fringe since I was like literally the story of the fringe, you know, like, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, that's 22, 23 years. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not Have here you, to no, 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 I'm, not to. No, neither um, am I. I'm just like, this, I'm walking through the conversation <laughs> really is what I'm doing. Right. And so I think, have, have you earned your stripes? Have you been part of the festival? And do you take something fringy to the festival? That's the other question that I always ask. So am I running in something new? Am I doing something that's a genuine fringe experience, right? If I'm just coming yeah. in and doing my big stage show that I'm doing everywhere else for two weeks in Adelaide, which I have never done, but I think that's a more interesting question. Is that the place at a fringe festival? If you're trying something new, if you're doing like, you know, running something in, you know, like giving people a genuine fringe experience, I think that that's probably more a, a greyer area. But that would be just my personal perspective. Yeah. 
on what that is. I would argue that the main difference between what I was talking about with Melbourne and what I'm talking about with Adelaide is that Melbourne International Comedy Festival literally imports international acts to compete against the comedians who are based in the city where the festival happens. Yeah. There are comedians who build the scene the rest of the year in Melbourne. And it's not people like me. It's not people at my end because it doesn't affect people at my end in any way. It affects Luke Heggy. It affects, you know, you. It affects Charlie. It affects Becky Lucas. It affects Nina Oyama. The reason these people all had big sellout seasons is at least in part to the fact that their, their review could run in the age week one in a way that it yeah. never could in the last 20 years. That's all I would argue. Yeah, I... I, I... <clears throat> I don't know. I you don't need to comment on this. It's more. No, I, my I, I, I just, I see both sides. So it's just kind of like one of those things. It's just kind of like, you know, um, it's unfair or, you know, not great that I have to compete that I could theoretically have to compete in a festival against Maria Bamford or something like that. But then there's also the argument that having Maria Bamford at the festival massively elevates the profile of the festival. The festival gets more co- coverage and that someone goes out to see Maria Bamford and they're like, let's go see another show. And then they can end up at mine because they've realized that they're there as part of a festival. I don't know one way or another. I think there's definitely arguments to suggest that maybe the balance has been wrong in previous years and that the not having them here has been like really good this year um, for a bunch of smaller acts to kind of build a fan base and get seen. Um, and I think it'll be really interesting to watch the next few years because I don't think the internationals are going to come back all at once. I think they're going to come back quite slowly. Um, I think it might be, you know, four or five years before we get the number of internationals we used to get. Um, and I think that means that when the internationals are back, they're going to... It might be more of a level playing field for a while, that there might be more of a fan base for the local acts and less of a fan base for the international acts who haven't been here for a while. So... I don't know. This feels, this feels it's feels the same as like when, when you're like asking trans stuff. I'm like I don't know. I just have this. <laughs> like I, I I'm not an expert. I'm not a scientist. And you're asking me these things. I'm like I I'm not a business person. I'm not no, a festival I mean, programmer. I, I'm only, I was only interested in your perspective because I think that this is for people at my end of the industry. This is all just philosophical debates, right? It doesn't matter one way or the other. The internationals come, they don't come, does not affect my life in any way. But what I saw happen this year was it affected the lives of people who are at a level that isn't this level, you know, who are aspiring to be at this level. The people who, you know, were able to sell out a 150-seat room every fucking night of the festival, which means that next year they'll be able to go to a 300-seat room or a 500-seat room or a 1,000-seat room. And I often feel that we import people... With our own money to compete against those people, to put blockages in the way for emerging artists, and I'm not sure that that is the role of the comedy festival anymore. Is to put, like, like you said, if it's Maria Bamford and there's an advantage to what she brings that there isn't, there isn't somebody here who could do that same thing. I mean, Maria Bamford, the market's going to be fine for Maria Bamford to come out. Maria Bamford's enough of a big enough act that she'll just come out and people will go and see her show and the market will work it out. But I wonder if, like, you know, spending festival money on getting people to compete against Australian acts is something that we should be... You know, anyway, that's my opinion, Susan Proven, if you're listening. It's not Anna's opinion. She wants to be on the gala next year. So please book her on the gala next year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I just... I'm not a business person. Like, I I think that's something that, that really frustrates me. It's just kind of like... Like, I, I say this to people a lot, of, of, I'm a very good stand-up comedian, I'm a terrible businesswoman. Like, I'm terrible at being a small business. And 
I really, I feel like I've spent a lot of time learning how to do the stuff on stage, write a show, craft it, and everything like that. I have no idea how to sell tickets. You know, my shows sell out, and I'm like, okay, good. Like, every season of the show has sold out on word of mouth. I have slow ticket sales at the start, and then people realize it's a good show, and they come, and then it sells out in the last half of the season. But... I don't know how to sell it. I don't know how to pitch it. I don't know how to get signed. I don't know how to get in contact with a television agency or get a, anything produced. Like, I just... I know how to get on stage and perform and all this other stuff that you're meant to be doing behind the scenes to be a good comedian. Like, you you don't get taught how to do it. No one tells you how to get signed. No one, And I, so it's just kind of like, if these big-name comedians are here, I don't know what they're doing to my ticket sales. I can't do that kind of level of market analysis. I don't know if they're doing a big boon to the festival that's leading to a bunch of run-on sales to me or if they're stealing sales that I would have gotten or anything like that because I don't even know how I'm getting the sales I've got, let alone hypothetical sales that I may have lost or might have gotten or anything like that. It's just... Like, this is why I, I keep yelling into the universe for someone to sign me because I'm like, I need someone who is a business person to walk me through all this stuff. Well, clearly, what I've done there, Anna, and let's be honest, I apologize for it, is I framed my absolute editorial opinion as a question when I really should have just done it as an editorial opinion and not got you to dip your toe into it at all. There is no doubt in my mind that we need to import less international acts to the festival for the sake of the Australian comedy community. That's what I believe. Uh, and I understand enough about it to know that that is absolutely 100% the fucking case. I mean, yeah, gen- so they- genuinely, <laughs> you've, you've asked the question and there's yeah. part of me like, oh, it'd really be interesting yeah. hearing Will's take on this because yeah. Will feels like he'd know a lot more about this than I do. <laughs> Yeah, no, I've I've certainly I've certainly tried to slip through my firm opinion as part of a question there. But no, I think that I just wanted to hear it from the perspective of acts coming up rather than the perspective of somebody who's already established. And I guess that's why I asked the question in the first place. But let's move away from it. Why aren't you signed? Like, why don't you have a manager or an agent? Do you have like what why do you think that is? I mean, you're selling out shows, you're funny, you've got a distinct hook. Like, I mean, without wanting to reduce your entire, like, you know, personhood as like, um, you know, as a hook, but you oh, have oh, something I, unique to say. I'm quite happy to talk about it in those terms. Like, it's it's very crass and crude and everything like that. But mm. it's, it's, there's also that part of me of like, trans people are very much in the zeitgeist right now. Like, this is a good time for me to have come out as trans and a good time for me to be doing material about this. Like, uh, five, ten years from now, me doing the same material would be like, oh, really? Okay, that's pretty 101 you know and if i did it five ten years ago i feel like you know australia and the world at large would not be ready for that kind of content um so i'm like it now feels like the moment and i'm very good at it i don't know why i'm not getting signed and and you can't ask like that's the thing like earlier in my career when i wasn't getting the gigs i wanted to get i was at least able to approach those bookers and be like hey why aren't you booking me what do you need to see from me i don't feel like there's the same kind of like ability to kind of approach a management company and be like hey you haven't signed me and i feel like you should why has that not happened you know and i say offhandedly to people who who i know who work in comedy um who are like a little bit above me and they're like don't be so needy don't want it so much i'm like i don't know how to not want this like this is what i want to do i want to make people laugh i want to have a career i want to be doing this as my job not as something i do whilst also bartending you know i want this to be my life i don't know how to make that transition and i don't know how to make it without wanting to make it that's i I mean firstly i think that you're being badly advised would be my opinion in that i don't think i actually think that um there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a professional there's nothing wrong with wanting to like you know have somebody look after you and look yeah you to be able to just concentrate on the art of what you're doing 
I would also say, that, and I know this is easy for me to say, but I would also say that I think maybe in most, like at least in my world, that you can still approach people. In fact, I would highly recommend approaching somebody and saying, hey, you're the sort of people that I would love to manage my career. What is it about me at the moment that hasn't got me on your radar? Am I on your radar? What do you need to see from me? They would be the exact things that I would want to be seeing from people. And I absolutely think that you act, can do that and you should do that. I would not hesitate to do that. Well, I think that's you're very different from what I've been told. Possible. So yeah. well, I'm very think, happy to hear that. I think whoever's telling you that is a fucking idiot, to be honest. Like, I think, how the fuck are you meant to be? Like, if somebody's going, what I want to see from this person, like, the only reason we're not you know, signing Anna is because I haven't seen her do, I wanted to be able to do consistent five minute spots and I'm not seeing her do enough consistent five minute spots. Well, what does it advantage you to not know that? Like if you know that you can then go away and put together the consistent five minute spots and show them a whole bunch of them or whatever. You know, the, the, that I just use that as the dumbest of all examples, but. Well, yeah, I just, the, the, the vibe seems to be like, you know, just, uh, keep doing good work and wait and it will come. And I'm like, okay when how you know but it's also, like, like they, they like it's, it's very there's no it's, it's something really frustrating about like performing arts career that sometimes makes me wish I, I had the kind of brain that was suitable for like law or science or something like that where it's just kind of like okay you've completed your degree now you do your postgrad then after that you go apply to one of these places to do an internship and then after, and there's a very clear like structured career path of what you're meant to do and every gate has a very clearly kind of like pass fail of like nail this interview have this score on your exam whatever and then with arts it's just like well i had this number of good reviews but were they from the right places and i had this many ticket sales but were they not enough because it was a smaller venue or like i i got nominated for this award but would i have been signed if i had won it instead like it's just you know like everything's like like, this is good but i don't know if it's good enough and i don't have the entry requirements in front of me so i don't know how to get to that next level of the career yeah, which is frustrating because I, I know I would be good at it. I know I but would. But also, that's it. that stuff's all dumb, and I don't think that a lot of it is actually true either. Which is, it all feels really true at the time, and I think that hard sometimes it's hard to differentiate truth from what feels true. Like you know, this is. But like, and I this is a bit of advice that I would I give generally to people that when you're looking for management. One of the biggest mistakes that people end up making with management is thinking that they work for their management. Not once in my fucking life does my management give me 15% of what they earn or 30% of what they earn or 50% of what they earn, depending on what it is. It is the other way around. You are looking for somebody who is going to work for you. You are looking for somebody who you are going to pay a percentage of your money to for perhaps the rest of your life. You're looking at someone who, if you have a good career, is probably going to earn like hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars over their lifetime from you, not the other way around. In what other aspect of your life, if you were going to pay somebody a million dollars to fix your house or to, would you not interview them and work out what it is that they did well and didn't do well and all these sort of things. It makes absolutely no sense that we think that like management is this like magic one that you've just got to go. You just got to like, just keep doing what you're doing and not really know what you're meant to be doing in any way. And then one day somebody's going to just float down with a magic wand and tap you on the shoulder and go, you know, 
It's all going to happen now. The idea that you absolutely should be going to people and saying, hey, I like what you do as opposed to what somebody else does because this is the direction I want to see my career going in. I like this person you represent and this person you represent and I think that I would fit really beautifully in with those people in your stable. I'd love you to do with my career what you've been able to do with their career. What can I do? What is it that I am not doing? Here's what I've done so far. What is it that I'm not doing at the moment that means that this is not happening is there something about can we start that process? Can I get you to come and see my shows more often? That is just a professional and competent thing to do. And anyone who thinks that there's something uncool about that or there's something like that that's not the right way to do it can literally go fuck themselves as far as This I'm is concerned. everything I've wanted to hear for about two years. <laughs> Just me, just like trying to take my career to the next level, and just like we'll just keep gigging away, and hopefully something will click. And just being told that to get permission from someone to be like, yeah, just email them, we'll be fine. Right, <laughs> just set up a meeting because worst thing that happens is they say no, you're not right for us, and then you can just go, okay, great, well, I'll just yeah. move on to somebody e- even else. Even knowing why I'm not right for them, you know, right. and even 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 right. even if it's something I can't change or don't want to change, you know. They're like, you're too this or you're too that. You're like, well, that's what I like doing. Then that's fine. But just knowing that I can't get it rather than waiting to see if I might would be so much better for me. But Well, here's what I also know is that with your career trajectory, the way that it's going, like, you know, it's it's proving to be successful. Yeah. Normally what happens is at some stage, somebody is having the success you're having now will end up with management, will end up with a career. So it is a matter of it will happen. Now we're talking about the timeline of when it happens and not just this idea that, because the last thing that you want is to get to a point where, you know, you haven't been approached for management and you end up taking terrible management because they were the people who asked. No, fuck that. If you want to have a great career, you want to have the best management. Identify who you think the best management for you is and have a conversation with those people about how it is that they could be your manager. And yes, maybe the answer at the end of that will be, no, it's never going to happen. You're just not for me for whatever fucking reason. And that's then at least you know that and you don't waste another fucking two years of your life, you know, doing all these mysterious things in the hope that someday that's going to happen. This is so good to hear. And it's so good to have this conversation as well, just because I feel like in generally just comedians or everyone tries to pretend like they've been there before. Like that's the vibe of just kind of like, this is, you know, like I know how this works. I know how this business works. I know everything. I'm not going to ask questions. I'm not going to look stupid. Like everyone's trying to be the coolest kid in the class. So just like no one's able to put it out there and just be like, I don't know how this works. And I want to know, you know, like you just, everyone's like, well, yeah, no, you're on a TV show. I know how that works. Yeah. I know. I know how people get TV shows. I'm just don't have a TV show because I don't want a TV show. You know, like that's the attitude that everyone tries to have. And it's just, it's very refreshing to be able to be out here and just be like, I don't know. Explain things, please. You know, just be dumb and own it. The idea that anyone, I mean, the, the, you know, like uh, William Goldman uh, wrote Butch Cassidy and the yeah. Sundance Kid. Nobody knows anything. Princess Bride. Nobody knows anything. And it's the smartest thing that's ever been written about like Hollywood, about movies, about television. It, it's something that regularly comes up in Gruen meetings because as like we have a team and the best ideas always come from a discussion between that team. But my role on the show is at the end of the two hour meeting, when we eventually go, here are the 20 ideas we have and we need to have six ideas in a certain order. And somebody needs to make a call on what those ideas are. That's my job, right? My job is to go, okay, we've all said what we're going to say and, you know, debated and blah, blah, blah. Now here's 
what are we going to do? Because somebody, it's somebody's job to make that decision. And I always say, and I am just guessing, because I don't know. Like I've got more experience guessing and I've got a track record of getting an enough amount of those guesses right that people have given me the role of being chief guesser. But at the end of the day, that's all I am. I'm just the most educated guesser in this room, but we're still all fucking guessing. Uh, I love that. Is that is that your LinkedIn profile, Will Anderson, guesser in chief? Yeah. <laughs> well, professional guesser. But okay, anyway, like, we've got to uh, start finishing it up and uh, we really just start. Uh, this has been great. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It was um, the first one, I think, Definitely was sort of all, you know, much more about your life. And I still think one day we should release the release the Snyder Cut, you know, yeah. <laughs> in relation. But I have very much enjoyed this because I felt like I've got to know you, um, you know, more than last time for some reason. I feel like this is... Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really happy with how this one turned out. Good. I'm glad we got to do it again. I'm glad too. So um, let's plug some things first and then we'll get into the the final few questions that I always ask. So, uh, what do you want to plug? Is there anything? Are you doing shows or is there recordings of things or what can people... Um, I was going to plug my uh, return season of my solo show, but it uh, looks like it's going to sell out today. So, it's probably not going to be any tickets available by the time this goes out. Um, And apart from that, plugging my social media because I am figuring out how to take it to other cities, but I don't have any confirmed dates anywhere yet. Um, so just at Anna Piper Scott everywhere. Um, and I'm hoping by the time this comes out, I might have a top surgery fundraiser, um, which will be live. So it'd be nice if anyone's listened to this and enjoyed uh, listening to me, if they could flick me $5 to help me get a little bit of surgical gender confirmation, which would be quite nice. So what uh, if you don't mind me asking, and I, I feel like you won't mind me asking. No, please ask. Uh, for people listening, what does that what does that mean? Because um, the language so, I'm sure people have heard, but I, they might not understand what what that might mean. So generally, you'll hear trans people talking about um, uh, there's all kinds of different surgeries that you can get, but there's top surgery, which is surgery on your chest. So uh, for trans men and trans masculine people, that's a mastectomy, breast removal, and then there's for trans feminine trans women there is uh breast augmentation uh and then you get bottom surgery which is surgery on genitalia um and uh that's much more complicated than we need to go into uh on bottom surgery because there's many variations um but yes i'm not particularly concerned with bottom surgery especially because it can be uh a little risky and it's very very expensive uh but top surgery um breast augmentation uh would make my life a lot easier. Would make me feel a bit more at home in my body. Um, it also just people gender you a lot based on how you look in that area. So I would probably get gendered correctly more often. It would also mean all the clothes that I buy would finally fit um, because every <laughs> every uh, dress and top and anything made for someone with shoulders as broad as mine and someone as tall as I am also expects me to have much larger breasts than uh, less than an A cup. So it means that um, it would make me fit into a cis world a lot easier if I was able to afford this surgery. It was really quite powerful to read recently Elliot Page's description of how important his... Uh, top surgery had been in the transition it was one of the real takeouts of the recent interview i 
Yeah, I, th- I thought so. Um, is it not covered? Uh, what's the medical? What, what, what does Medicare cover any of this surgery? What's the, uh, Medicare covers it uh, for trans masculine people, uh, not completely, but you can get a bit of a rebate. Um, but they don't do that for trans women getting breast augmentation because breast augmentation is seen as cosmetic. Mm. Um, so it's going to be entirely out of pocket. It's going to be, I'm still, I'm consulting with a surgeon on Monday, but, um, it's going to be somewhere in the region of 10 to $13,000 at a minimum. Um, so it's a lot of money for someone who, as we've established, is not signed, is not good at running a business. Uh, so I'm going through the crowdfunding route, it looks like, um, and I just need to figure out the particulars and then get a fundraiser live and then probably going to try and do some kind of fundraiser donation gala benefit show somewhere to try and get, you know, some more donations that way. Well, if you'd have me and if I'm available, I'd be very happy to come and be part of that. So um, I am going to hold you to that. You've said that on air and now you're going to be fucking held to task. Yeah. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't have said it if I didn't mean it. It's my own podcast. I'd be very grateful. <laughs> I, could, I could also pretend to lose this bit of the audio. <laughs> oh, no, we just failed again. Just happened. my hard drive. Yeah, oh, I'm, no. Actually, I'm not even going to joke about that. It's all recording well at the moment. So I'm just going to get get through to the end. Uh, what do you think happens when we die? Uh Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Have you ever Which believed why anything? Why I want my body donated to science? Um, no, I, I, my mum raised us without religion um, because my sister was born with cerebral palsy. Uh, so she kind of went. I can either believe in a god who would do this to a child, or I can not believe in a god, and it's more comfortable to not believe in a god. Um, and that's how she raised us. I don't think I asked you this question last time because I think it, it was a question that I've added since the 200th episode. But uh, on my desk, it's as close as I have to a inspirational, you know, sort of mo- motivational saying. And it says, uh, what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? And the way that I interpret that is to always just, when I'm doing something, to be doing the thing that I want to do and assuming it's going to be successful rather than doing something in order for it to be successful or change it because I think that I have this idea of how it will be successful. So, uh, Anna Piper Scott, what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? Um, the cynical part of me is saying the stock market. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but I feel like the more honest revealing answer is uh, would be something like burlesque, something uh, involving nudity um, and being public in, in, in revealing my body, uh, which is something I usually adjust and edit and cover up a lot more. I'm very self-conscious and anxious about it. So I feel like burlesque is the honest answer. Um, it's probably a little late in the show to dive too deeply into the body image stuff, but like, did you have, I mean, how, how is your relationship with your body been all your life? Has it always been because, I mean, I, I don't even know how to necessarily phrase the question that I'm asking, but is, do you feel like it's constantly, you've been just aware of this body has not been right for me? Does it feel better now than it used to? Are, like, are you more comfortable with your body now that it's, you know, more represents the body that you imagine it to be than you were previously, or those issues are just as prevalent now, like our body image is just as prevalent now that you are who you are meant to be than they were before. Do you understand the question I'm asking? Yeah. Uh, my relationship with my body is definitely changing. Um, I feel like uh, 
growing up, I was kind of viewing my body uh, how most boys do, which is uh, boys get trained to view their body in terms of utility. You know, how fast can you run? How many chairs can you lift? Whatever. And women get raised to view their bodies aesthetically. Uh, and then kind of closeted trans people kind of uh, raised viewing their body by how much it does or doesn't fail to be the gender that they want it to be. Um, so it's been a kind of transition of like learning to view my body, not as like a car that my brain drives, but something that's actually part of me and something that I can be connected with and learning to view it aesthetically, learning to look at it as, you know, something to be admired and observed and enjoyed rather than just um, a more, you know, neutral aesthetic option. Um, I don't know, it's, it's a constantly evolving thing. This is... I'm trying to give you the briefest possible answer because this is really something I've talked to with, like, other trans people for, like, four hours straight. Like, there is a lot underneath the water on this particular iceberg. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, as I said, a little late in the podcast probably to bring that one up. That's for next time. That's for the the actual sequel, not this pretend sequel that we're doing at the moment. Yeah. Uh, if you... Uh, could ha- be brilliant at anything in the world. You know, your 10,000 hours have been done. You're just really, you have this fantastic skill. What is that skill that you would love to have? Uh, music. Um, yeah, but this is something uh, we talked about a little bit in the last one is that um, I, I tell people that I'm only good at one thing. I only know how to do stand-up. I'm a single threat. Uh, but knowing how to do something like that that's completely expressive in a different way, any kind of musical instrument or being able to sing would just make my life so happy. And uh, last but definitely not least, I have a time machine. You can go to any point in the future, any point in the past, visit your own life, do whatever you want to do is the actual uh, truth of it. But uh, what uh, what would you like to do with your time machine trip? Um, I probably want to go to the future. I just... Things, I, apart from climate change, everything else is getting better, I think. Everything else is, I'm very much that, that believer in that arc of history bends towards justice, or whatever that quote is. Um, so, yeah, I feel like things are always better in the future. And I'm just trying to push ourselves to get there faster as possible. You how know, far in the future wait, do you think 15 you would, or 20 yeah, years. I was going to say, how far in the future do you think you would like to go? Um, I don't know. I, I feel like... Uh, I feel like 10, 15 years, I feel like is a good amount of time. I feel like after that, I'm going to be the one out of place. I'm going to be the one who's problematic. I'm going to be the one where you're like, you can't say that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. You, you're like, who, who's this old fashioned broad? <laughs> <laughs> who's this bitch? She eats meat. That's so disgusting. Who would do that? <laughs> This is horrible. <laughs> oh, she's eating avocado on her toast. Doesn't she understand that most avocados are blood avocados? It's the equivalent of wearing blood diamonds. Yeah. So <laughs> you might as well be wearing fur. This is obnoxious. It's so disgusting. Uh, Go back to your own time. And uh, Piper, Scott, thank you very much for taking the time to do this again. I will say it was a great relief when uh, Podcast Mike said that he'd bumped into you and you had offered to redo it because it was hanging over my head that uh you know that uh, the the recording had failed and particularly failed at my end so i'm so glad that we got to have another conversation and i really enjoyed having this one too so thank you very much for being on the show thanks for having me it was wonderful 